Blog Talk Radio. Todd's probably playing that live right now for those lucky people in New York City. But hey, we're going to have some fun here. Welcome to another exciting edition of RundgrenRadio.com. I am your host tonight. My name is Cruiser Mel, but we all can know that you can call me Mel. Tonight we've got a very special guest. He's been on the show before, but he's a ton of fun. And he has a couple of updates that he wants to talk about. His name is Michael Holman. He was on the show last spring, I believe, right before Todd started doing those the, the first round of the Johnson shows. We're also going to have some more of those really cool Todd rarities. We've got some really some nice goodies for you. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But... Let's do some quick announcements, and then we'll get into the interview. As I said, Todd is right now on the stage in New York City at the Gramercy Theater. If you forgot that you were supposed to be there, you're late, and you better hurry up, and we'll forgive you. You can come back and listen to the archives later. On Thursday this week, he's going to be in Chicago performing at the Park West. <clears throat> then on Saturday, Las Vegas at Red Rocks Casino and Hotel. Yours truly will be at that show, so come up and say hi. I'll probably be sporting some Rungren Radio t-shirt or, or something. Uh, there's going to be a little mini utopia reunion of sorts on January 16th in New York City at the Bitter End. It's going to be Moogie and Kevin and Ralph and John uh, Siegler. So check it out at the Bitter End on the 16th of January. Speaking of other bandmates, Kevin Sultan has a couple of dates coming up. One is coming up tomorrow in Chicago. He's going to be playing at the Abbey Pub. Now here's a secret. It's his birthday tomorrow. So I've been asked to tell everybody that as soon as he takes the stage tomorrow night, Everyone needs to surprise him by singing happy birthday to him. So play along and uh, wish him a happy birthday, okay? Tell him I said so too. And then on January 13th, you know that webcast that we've been talking about? Well, it's now been announced that you can get the tickets to the live event by going to www nevesa.com that's n-e-v-e-s-s-a dot com forward slash chasm show dot html now that's if you actually want to be at the live event if you can't be at the live event but would like to watch the webcast you can find out information at www.chasmshow.com okay so that show is going to be at 8.30 Eastern Time on the 13th of January. And I'm going to mention one more time that if you want to be on Chasm's CD cover, 
You can find out all about it at kazimsultan.com slash the project. You can watch the video. It's real easy to upload your photo and your information and pay by PayPal. So get your mug on his mug, and we'll all be smiling from his own his face. I don't know. It's going to be weird. Now, this is kind of special. It has also been announced at the toddstore.com. There is going to be a Todd Rundgren Musician's Survival Camp. I don't know when it's going to be. They haven't announced that, but it's going to be five full days. It's going to be near Woodstock, New York. It's it's really a camp for performers, songwriters, roadies, any kind of people that that work in the music business, hands-on. So you can find out information, and I'm sure it will be <clears throat> updated more and more, at the toddstore.com forward slash TR Survival Camp. So check it out. I don't know what that's going to be, but it could be fun. And speaking of camp, in January 17th, 18th, and 19th, you can go play on Todd Rundgren's record by going to MyRecordFantasy.com. This is sort of an interesting little tidbit. You know those rolling tables that uh, the keyboards were sitting on during the uh, the Todd uh, and healing sets? Okay. Well, those things got kind of damaged on one of their little travels, so they got kind of banged up, and they're really difficult to use now. So Chris Anderson has them in his possession, and he doesn't know quite what to do with them. So he's wondering if maybe he needs to make these available somehow to the fans. If anyone is interested at all in having the keyboard stand that Greg Hawks used or that Jesse Gress used, let Doug know, and we'll find out some more information from Chris. So believe it or not, I know I went real fast through those announcements, but I wanted to make sure that we got to Michael Holman in time, but we'll have plenty of time here. So without any further delay, let's see if we've got Michael Holman on the line. Okay, everybody, we've got Michael Holman on the line. He was the first several months ago on our show to coin the term FOT or Friends of Todd. Michael, are you there? I am here. Hey, from thanks sunny, for joining warm us. New York City. Well, actually, not all that sunny and not all that warm. <laughs> um, we have a big snowstorm supposedly coming pretty soon. It's all cloudy and cold, freezing. But, but that said, I am happy as a clam. I love the city that I live in, and uh, especially when Todd comes rolling through. Well, you got to see him uh, last night at the Iridium. Is that right? Yeah, he was at the Iridium. And uh, it's an inch. I've never been there before, uh, but it was the home of um, Les Paul for a number of years before he passed away, sadly. Where he would he would jam with his band. Uh, it's a small it's a small club. I, I'd say it seats about uh, 200, 250. Sit down type thing in the basement. You kind of feel like it's you're sitting down there. You kind of feel like it's 1950s New York. Uh, jazz scene, you know, kind of a speakeasy vibe. Yeah. Uh, 
50s nightclub, very postmodern uh, decor. And, you know, and there's drinks and there's food, and food was delicious. And small stage, and uh, gosh, man, wow, Gary U.S. Bonds, was there. He came up on stage and sang uh, Stand By Me, and then he pulled uh, Todd on the stage, and they kind of did a little Stand By Me duet. Uh, uh-huh. And I I came in the middle of... Uh, I came to see the second set. Uh-huh. I missed the first set. And I understood the first set was really great, and Todd was already quite uh, loose. And then... <laughs> He continued with his diet of vodka and and uh, surprises, and by the second set, it well, he was feeling no pain, and the show was quite uh, loose and loosey goosey and fun and funny, and he was telling some hilarious jokes, and it was just, it was wild. Jesse was Jesse was back giving him you know giving him backup. Jesse was leading the band. And I don't know all the names of the other musicians. Um, another guitar player was one of Les Paul's uh, collaborators. You have to get his name somewhere. I forgot his name. Um, he was, you know, a bit younger than Les Paul, but certainly from the 50s generation of kind of like West Montgomery-style jazz guitar playing. There's a woman on stand-up bass who was amazing. I saw a video. She is amazing. Wow. Really great bass player. And then Jesse was was um was, you know, on guitar and there was a pianist and a drummer who were pretty amazing. And uh Todd it was great because Todd did his uh, uh Todd with a twist uh kind of kind of set because it had that kind of vibe in the house, you know, it was kind of a jazzy you know, like I said, West Montgomery vibe over the whole thing. So he did he did his kind of like easy listening uh, um, um, album. He did a number of songs from Todd with a Twist, which I one of my favorite albums. So right. I, I was quite happy. Yeah. And the Onion ring, Rings were really good, so I was really happy. <laughs> wow, that's high praise right there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you got to make it to that show because I, I think that was something really, really unique. Uh, you know, Todd doesn't do that every day, and uh, so I, I color me green that I, I didn't get to go. <laughs> yeah, there was a few other. I mean, I wish I knew the names of everybody that was there. A couple of, you know, a uh, couple of uh, luminaries in the rock world were there. I just, I. Billy Squire was there. He performed for a second. There was uh, one of the musicians from um, Todd's uh, Utopia band was there. Um, was it, I, was forget, it I don't know. Hmm? You think it was Moogie Klingman? I think yeah, was that's who it was. That's okay. exactly who it was. I remember that. Yeah, that's who it was. Who was there? Very good. And yeah. you know, we were. And, you know, eventually. I mean, the fun part. You know, talking about the gig itself. Um, I mean, I don't know how fun that is for the for the listeners, but I suppose it is fun to kind of you know you are there you know type of of uh, you know radio drama from the 40s and 50s or kind of radio reporting uh, vibe. I, I I certainly am happy to share it in that way. If it if it if you're sitting at home in I don't know Duluth is Duluth in Montana? 
Yeah, I think so. Or Minnesota or something. Duluth, up- North North Dakota, anywhere, wherever you are, wherever you may be, whether it's a big city like L.A. or a small town like Jacksonville, Mississippi, listening to this uh, reporting, I'm going to give it to you in a way that I hopefully can really draw a picture and make it fun. Um, I, I was at a, a Hennessy party, so I was tying on a few Hennessy's. Mm-hmm. A hip-hop theater Hennessy-sponsored party in which they were serving a new drink. It's a mix. It's not just Hennessy cognac, which is, you know, top-shelf cognac. It's Hennessy's looking to get it into mixed drinks, so they were serving these mixed drinks. And I couldn't resist. I had to try every flavor. <laughs> and they're really good, kind of fizzy. And so I'm, like, already three sheets to the wind before I've left that. And their promise of food, but there really wasn't any food. It was just drinks. And it was, and people were giving out awards. A really good friend of mine, Roger Guinevere Smith, who uh, some people may know. He was in a few Spike Lee films. He played Huey Newton on stage, and then they actually made a film of him, one-man act, doing this, this Huey Newton piece. It was brilliant. He's done a lot of other brilliant stuff. And he entered. He gave an award to the woman who uh, wrote uh, uh, – when when color uh, the the new film uh when color girls consider suicide when the rainbow's enough uh uh which is a feature film now but it was a play a long time ago and anyway he's a good friend of mine he introduced the woman who wrote it and gave her an award and then I'm hanging out and chatting up the Hennessy people trying to get a gig from them to have me come in and give a lecture about the whole downtown art scene and the whole hip hop scene which they want me to do for their corporate things, and I'm thinking, you know, how much am a, how much of a, of a, of a fee am I going to charge? Well, I'm worth $2,500 now for an afternoon of chatting. Sure, I am. Of course, I am. And it's freezing outside, and I, and, and this really cool guy who I just met through an ex-girlfriend of mine wanted to go see Todd at Iridium, and I sort of heard about it, but Mary Lou, who Mary Lou Arnold, those of you out there listening who are from are in the inner sanctum sanctorium know Mary Lou Arnold is Jesse uh Jesse's wife and and um and Todd's tour manager. Uh-huh. And so Jesse always contacts me about all the gigs and stuff, but she didn't tell me about the, this one I guess because it was it was oversold and overbooked and whatever, but I kind of insinuated myself into the picture so when this guy said, well, I'm going up to see this thing, I said, oh, I'll take you up there. And so he, we took a ride up there and uh, went to the – and I called Mary Lou on the way, and Mary Lou said, you know, I'm going to try to get you in if I can, da 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 It's freezing outside. We're waiting outside to get in. I called Mary Lou again, and, you know, this club is downstairs. So she says, I'm downstairs at the foot of the stairs. I said, if I stick my head in, will you see me and can I get in? And so we eventually sneak our way past having to pay for anything because, you know, I'm so fabulous and such a close good friend of Todd's. I don't pay for anything. Yes. Now, I know this sounds horrible. I'm just being somewhat joking here, but not really. No, I'm no joke. I'm serious. (laughs) I don't pay for anything. You are an FOT. You are. I'm an FOT, man, straight up, first tier FOT. So Mary Lou gets us in. We uh, get a seat, 
um, the 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 gigs going. There's a, there's a guy playing who also played with Les Paul and his wife, and they're doing. Uh, they did a Carol King song. Uh, Carol King song. Um, uh, it's too late, baby, which was kind of heartbreaking for me. Talk about blow by blow because. I've been going out with this woman, uh, Sarah Lundgren, from Sweden. Lundgren, what a perfect name, from Sweden. And we've been going out since the summer, and we kind of just broke up, which was kind of sad. And as I was listening to this woman sing, It's Too Late Baby, and I realized that it was exactly about my relationship with Sarah. You know, we really tried to make it. Something inside has died, and we just can't hide, and we just can't fake it. And it's like, ow, this is so painful. Oh, and I was actually a little bit in tears. But then, you know, a couple of more beers later, I was I was again feeling no pain and and then uh after this couple performed, then the house band comes on and then they bring up uh uh um the Barry Lewis bond, uh Barry Gary Lewis US Bonds. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because you know you think of Gary U.S. Bonds in his in the height of his rock days, and he really made that big comeback in the '80s, didn't he? Well, that's that's the only way that I even know about him. I, I yeah, I mean he he kind of like was was kind of made this kind of interesting reemergence in the '80s, and he seemed so young and so vital even in the early '80s. And I think that he did a music video, and I thought of that. And then, you know, tonight when I saw him, you know, he's an older man. He's obviously, I guess, you know, he's probably in his later 60s, maybe even early 70s or something. I have no idea how old he is. But he looked pretty good. But, you know, people people get older. They dress more conservatively, they more respectably. They're not such heavy-duty rockers. They're kind of wearing slacks and a nice sweater and, and you know, that type of look. And there he was on stage. He was He was great. His voice was just phenomenal and he called he called Todd up on stage Todd had a glass of, of vodka in his hand and they sang stand by me together and you know Todd he he goes into these great vocal um uh 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 sort of like gymnastics and 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 um screams and and shouts and 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 signifiers, you know, Todd will signify with his voice and scream and, you know, controlled screams that, that you, you go to the gigs just to hear that. You know, you, you just want to hear Todd scream. It's like you want to hear James Brown scream. You want to hear Todd yeah. scream. And, and, you know, when he does his, you know, his vocal riffs, you know, like, like he does on Real Man, you know. And uh, so he did that in Stand By Me and brought the house down. Everyone loved it. His voice sounded brilliant. Um, and then after they did another couple of songs, Todd came on with Jesse and did the the uh, Todd with a Twist, pretty much album. And then afterwards, uh, we went backstage and 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 uh, I was at Franklin. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Franklin out there. Mm-hmm. Franklin is friends to the stars. Franklin uh, is a good friend of Todd's as well. And he designs uh, sunglasses and, and sells sunglasses, and he's he's actually a pretty good musician himself, producer. And we were all hanging out backstage with with Jesse and Mary Lou and Todd, and and then 
then the interesting thing happens, of course, is that all the fans, you know, want to, you know, see him. And, you know, they want to take pictures with him. And it was a small kind of backstage area. So it's kind of a crush. And, and we, the FOTs of the inner sanctum, um, know better than to get in the way of that. You know, we can hang out with Todd later on at the hotel. So, you know, we kind of try to stay out of the way and let people take pictures with Todd and get trampled all over. And But, you know, we first hang out. We first, you know, pass around cigarette oh what did i say (laughs) and um you know start to feel good and then the crowd comes in and and what's so great about todd is he you know as brilliant as he is and it always blows my mind because you have to understand that well like when i was in high school and todd was a huge star and i never thought in a million years i'd ever know him or meet him as a friend luckily you know i got to meet him quite early on when i was in the tubes but but back in high school, when I first heard "Hello, it's me" and da 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 da, it's like, you know, you just think this is like a superstar. Jean and 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 Jeffrey, I'm gonna mention it, mixing all these names up. Todd was a superstar back then in the '70s. I mean, I was I was telling this friend that, you know, Todd was as big as Justin Timberlake is now. I mean, to me, that's how big Todd was in in at his height, in the early and mid '70s. And you know, now of course. He's he's you know he and everybody else from that period has been eclipsed by the latest big stars and that's only natural. But you know Todd fans, as we all know, are are quite are quite uh, committed and um, and enthusiastic and emotional and and you know who wouldn't be you know when you love Todd you'll always love Todd and his music just means so much and so but but what was interesting was how how generous Todd is with his fans and how, you know, there wasn't anyone who 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 wanted a picture with Todd turned away. You know, no one's turned away. Everybody gets their picture. Everybody gets to spend, like, you know, five minutes telling Todd about how when they met and what was said and what, you know, of course Todd can't remember any of this, you know, and he's... Right. But he's but just... He's, he's so great, though, with... with you know, allowing people to go on and on and on like that. He really is. He and he really he not only does he totally get what it means to be a fan and what it means to to for him to have these fans, but I you know and and he understands this on an emotional as well as as a as a business you know and 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 a music level, but I just think he he genuinely enjoys uh, his fans. He just enjoys people enjoying him and he enjoys it in return and it's not even a conceit or some or, or some sort of self-aggrandizing thing it's just that he he feeds off the energy he feels the energy the energy feeds him and 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 you know everyone walks away happy and it's it's really just so much fun to watch mm-hmm. it really was so much fun to watch and him cracking jokes and Using his his sarcasm to it like a rapier's wit, uh, with rapier wit, but but he, it, it's just a lot of fun. I just enjoy watching it all sort of unfold. Yeah. So you got to visit with him for a little bit last night, right? Yeah, and then afterwards, he, you know, it was still filled with, you know, ex rock stars and everything, and we, 
Franklin and Todd and I, you know, Todd, Todd wanted to go back to the hotel, but he was starving. And oh my God, hang on a second, Prairie Prince is on my cell. Hold on a second. Holy cow! Hey, hey Prairie. <laughs> hey, listen, man, you won't believe this, but I'm talking to Mel on Todd Rundgren Radio. <laughs> let me see. Like, let me see if she can hear you. I'm going to put my ear thing onto the mouth thing. Hold, maybe everyone out there can hear you as well. Say something. Hi, this is Prairie calling from the city bakery in Manhattan. Hi, Prairie. Can you guys hear? Can you hear Prairie? Yes. Yeah, they can hear you, Prairie. Okay, so I'm just getting ready to go over and do a sound check at the Gramercy, and I was wondering if you were going to come over and say hi, Michael. I'm actually going to uh, no. I'm not going to. I'm going to be get there at eight o'clock. I'm going to get to the gig at eight o'clock. And, and Mary Lou got me on the list plus one, and uh, uh, I'll see you at eight, and then after the gig. All right, sounds good. I'm, gonna, I'm having lunch with Kiki Smith right now, so bye bye, everyone. Oh, tell Kiki bye. I said hi. Tell her I love the documentary of her on um, that I saw. I think on Channel 13. Bye bye, bye, bye Michael Holman. Bye. <laughs> Well, that's a first. <laughs> that was uh, Prairie, the drummer for Todd. Yeah. Did you hear? Could you hear him? Yeah, I could hear him loud and clear. Yes. Um, I guess we're gonna. We've we've been. Uh, it has been revealed that we are pre-recording this interview because, as this interview is playing to the airwaves tonight, you will actually be at the uh, Gramercy Theater watching a, another Todd show. That's right. So, yes, so, folks, uh, we are recording this this afternoon. So if we get right. messed on our times and say tonight or this afternoon, now you know why. And it's kind of interesting because because Prairie is, as you all know, uh, also the drummer for the Tubes. That's how I know Prairie from back in 1975 when I was in the Tubes. And uh, Prairie was just having lunch with his uh, cousin, Kiki Smith. And those of you out there who are at all informed or aware of what's going on in the art world, you'd certainly know who Kiki Smith is. I mean, Kiki Smith is is arguably the, and certainly in the top four or five um, important, famous, well-known Art, female artists in the in the art in the entire art world. I mean, there's the Cindy Shermans, there's the there's the Jane Holt there's the, there's the Jane Holtzers, there's the big names, and Kiki is up there at the very top, and she's funny enough, Prairie Prince's uh, cousin. I'm hoping she comes to the gig tonight. And they were just hanging out, and he he called me out of the blue. That's kind of cool. I hope she comes. Uh, uh, and so you know, Prairie's drumming with Todd. At, at these gigs, uh, oh, the, yeah. the tonight's gig. Right, right. We love which Prairie. is happening right now as we speak. As we speak, yes, yes. Well, listen, this show uh, is called Rundgren Radio, and I'd like to ask you one more question about Todd, but then everything else is going to be about you. Oh. But I, I, I just wanted to get your take on the Todd and Healing show that uh, I think you saw the Morristown gig. Right. Didn't you just love it? Oh yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was but, really you know, magical. Some of them, I, I have 
some of them are mixed up in my head. You know, I, I remember seeing another gig in in New Jersey, like six months before. Yeah, that was the uh, Johnson gig. That's like what you're going to see tonight. Okay, so I'm mixing up a few things, but yeah, the healing gig was real. The, the healing tour was was really great. And uh, I'm looking at the sticker, the backstage pass, as we speak. Funny enough, uh, I uh, we're all over the place here, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm we're all over the place. Yeah. I I uh, see. What could I say about the healing gig? I'm not really sure. Again, there was a lot of uh, burning incense being passed around that sometimes makes things hard to remember what happened the next day. Yeah. Um, if you know what I mean, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Yeah, um, I know my uh, Diet Coke sometimes blurs my memory sometimes. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how people drink diet beverages, but that's, okay, that's far from me, far be it from me. Well, I doctor it up a little bit. Oh, I see. You yeah. doctor the diet. Yes, exactly. Got it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I know you bumped into Doug Ford, my my co-host, who's usually on on the show here. You saw him last night, and I did indeed. Yeah, and that that was great. And uh, he said that you you got him a CD and stuff like that. Um, but he didn't tell me the story. But he asked me to ask you how Nikki Nichols broke his nose. Oh my God. You know, I just got a call out of the blue a couple of days ago from um from um uh Marshall Holmes. Does anyone out there know Marshall? We whenever Marshall gets on the phone, we always say Marshall. Marshall is the funniest, coolest guy. I think he's from a Northern California family of means and just turned into a heavy duty rock and roller and became a uh, roadie and then a tour manager, et cetera, et cetera, for all kinds of great name bands. And he's a good friend of all everybody in the tubes and, and Todd and everybody. Marshall lived with Prairie and Diana for a couple of months. Um, anyway, Marshall calls me up, and he says, guess who's here with me? It's Nikki Nichols. And uh, Nikki told me a story about how he ran out for something between bites at a restaurant to get something, maybe to go to the cash machine or something, and unfortunately tripped and fell and broke his nose. And then Marshall and 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 uh, Nikki sent me a picture on their CD on their on their uh, cell phone <clears throat> of Nikki with his broken nose, which. You know, of course, creates raccoon eyes, like you've been punched, you know, black eyes around your eyes. Oh, uh-huh. And it was, wow, it was a sight to behold, I'll tell you. That Nicky, he's always getting himself in trouble. Yeah, I guess so. There should I be know, a... Last time you were on the show, you told that hysterical yet scary story about you guys being on the train with the gangsters and all that. Yeah, and... yeah, that was a fun. I don't think, do we want to, we don't want to repeat a story. No. No, done that People story can go back in the archives and listen to that. But uh, well, poor poor Nikki, Nikki, if you're listening, I hope you feel better real soon. Yeah, feel better, Nikki. I'm sure that he'll um, he'll feel better. Uh, I'm sure in uh, 
in a, in a couple of weeks. That wouldn't look like it's going to take a couple of three weeks, I'll tell you what. Oh, poor thing. <laughs> and some ice. But remember, everyone, any most most injuries, ice is your friend. Oh, wow. Doctor Strains, ice. muscle pulls. I mean, not, not broken bones, of course, or mad viruses, but, like, you know, any kind of, like, muscle strain or or pulls or or swelling or inflammation ice is your friend you would know you were you were a dancer so you yeah, know yeah that's this. true that's funny you know it's, it's this this friend of mine franklin who who uh, franklin and i and todd after after all the 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 goings on backstage todd just wanted to go back to the hotel was really starving so the three of us went out and went to probably like some hor- horrible diner and had both Todd and I had um, uh, uh, pastrami on rye, but it wasn't cats and it wasn't the Carnegie Deli. It was far sub sub substandard to those places. So I don't know what we were thinking, but um, Franklin was introducing me to somebody. And it and and it and it occurred to me how correct he was when he said this and how great it made me feel when he said, Yeah, well Michael Holman here was a backup dancer and singer, backup singer dancer for the tubes. And I'd never thought about that. I thought about myself as, you know, a dancer in the tubes, but then I thought, wait a second, my biggest, you know, biggest character I really didn't think of myself as a dancer. I thought I thought of myself as like a kind of a kabuki dance character. In the mm-hmm. tubes, anybody who'd seen the tubes, especially pre "She's a Beauty," I'm talking 1975, 76. <clears throat> um, the tubes, the 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 the, the numbers were uh, populated by yes, oftentimes dancers, casts of thousands, but sometimes character dancers. Like you know, I'd play like in "Pimp," the song "Pimp" sung by by uh, Bill Spooner. I would be on stage with his soon-to-become wife. Um, oh my God! If she's listening, she's going to kill me. If Cindy, uh, Cindy, <clears throat> Cindy Spooner, um, Cindy, and I would dance this 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 thing to the song "Pimp," um, kind of pantomime, not pantomiming, but acting out on stage, kind of very much in a in a. Um, Gene Kelly kind of way, you know, American in Paris kind of way, of this pimp and oh. his hoe on stage. With, uh-huh. You know, I'd have like this kind of pimp hat on, and she'd wear like hot pants, and I'd have a gun or something, and we'd dance around the stage. But we were kind of characters, and when we did Malagani, da Salarosa, whatever, we were like uh, revolutionaries, kind of like you know, guerrilla fighters, you know, with machine guns, uh, space babies. Kenny Ortega and I and um, Fee would be uh, astronauts in astronaut suits. Um, before Mondo Bondage, I was this the Rees date who gets beat up by 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 uh, Fee. Before he even goes on stage, so there was there was quite a bit of theatrics that had nothing to do with dancing, but was more like kabuki on stage. So, you know, I wasn't strictly a dan. I, I never trained to be a dancer. I didn't go to any school to be a dancer. I didn't know anything about modern dance or or um, 
or uh, you know Martha Graham like stuff or Twyla Tharp stuff. I you know I was never involved in anything like that. Uh, the the closest thing I've ever enjoyed uh, involving you know theat you know involving modern dance <clears throat> was was Palabolus, who I think you know Palabolus is like genius. I don't know if anybody out there remembers Palabolus, but uh, you know modern dance in terms of you know the Martha Graham type modern dance world is something completely alien to me. I was asked to da- to be a dancer with the tubes because Michael Cotton and Kenny Ortega saw me out at a club one night and I'm I'm a really good club dancer, you know, a party dancer, you know. Right. Dancing right. to James Brown, dancing to, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, at a at a disco type dancer. But that's what that was the energy that they wanted. They didn't want like, you know, regular theater dancers and, you know, musical dancers. They wanted, you know, real club dancers, freestyle dancers. And anyway, that's the role that I played in the band. The other the other girls uh were more trained dancers. And so but and so I don't know, it always kind of bothered me when people said, Oh, you were a dancer in the tubes and it's like ah that's not my you know, I'm I'm you know, today I'm like a you know, I have a I'm an avant garde band uh, like, you know, inspired by Stockhausen and John Cage and, and, you know, I'm a painter and I'm a director of film and television. And no offense to, to maybe this is offensive to dancers out there that, that somehow I see it as something I don't want to identify with strictly as a dancer. But I, I never did. I didn't like it. It wasn't who I was. I'm not like, you know, some theatrical dancer. So Franklin, when he introduced me last night to somebody, said, yeah, he's a backup singer and dancer for the tubes. And I thought, yeah, that's true. Like when I was a quaalude, I mean, it was a ludette, myself, Kenny Ortega, and um, Leroy Jones, we were the three ludettes behind quaalude when the budget really got up there for White Punks on Dope yeah. and Boy Crazy. And um, and so I was like, yeah, I was a backup singer, too. I was like a backup singer when I was a ludette. And for some reason, that really made me feel great. That made me feel like, oh, I wasn't just some, like, dancer. I was like a singer, a backup singer. I don't know why I'm mentioning all this, but that meant a lot to me last night. <laughs> I think it's because we were talking about um, ice. And I said something about that that this was advice right. coming from a dancer. So a dancer slash singer. How about that? How about <laughs> singer slash dancer? Okay, okay. Singer slash dancer. Well, you well I can say whatever you, I wanted to be. I can just say I was. I played lead guitar. The two. No, I, that's silly. I didn't do that. Cut that out. <laughs> you might. You might get found out on that one. Yeah, no, but you I, did that, mention you that, that, that you have an avant-garde band, and I yes. believe you're starting your 30th year with Gray. Yeah, now, see, this is interesting. After leaving the tubes and going back to school and then eventually graduating and then coming to New York, soon after moving to New York, I met uh, the artist-painter Jean-Michel Basquiat, actually th- at a party that I threw with Fab Five Freddy, who I'm sure a lot of people know who that is, and Stan Peskett. And if you don't know who Stan is, he's a dear friend of the Tubes, myself, the Tubes, um, an English artist uh, who lived in New York, who uh, uh, 
uh, had, had, a, had a studio on Canal Street, and we decided to have a big party there. It was on April 29th, 1979, and we televised it. We, I mean, we videotaped it, and, and it was a really fascinating party. It involved a lot of downtown artists as well as uptown uh, hip-hop artists, what would become hip-hop artists. And at that party, Jean-Michel Basquiat showed up, and uh, we became friends. And that night he asked me, you know, do you want to do you want to start a band? And this was like in '79, and that's the kind of thing we did in New York back in those days. And I'm, I'm sure that happens to this day. You know, you show up, you meet some cool people, you like the way they dress, you like the way they dance. It all seems very superficial, but it's all built around socializing. The whole the whole scene back in those days was all about going out and getting high and getting drunk and and dancing and partying, but also meeting the people who would become your lifelong collaborators and friends. Yeah. And that happened with Jean and I, and we started Gray. It wasn't called Gray, but that was the same band. Eventually changed the name to Gray, but ostensibly started Gray that night. And, you know, we were inspired by what was interesting about Gray, of course, was that, you know, it was like an art rock noise band, um, and we were inspired by John Cage uh, and, and his sound and musical musings using using machines and using tools and using empty cans and and you know broken glass and, and you know you know finding the beauty in sound and sound composition and then you know we were also inspired by by Stockhausen Karl Heinz Stockhausen who many of you out there know is, you know, famous German uh, creator of the movement Music Concrete, which was a lot of synthetic sounds, tape loops, recording dripping water. Um, speaking of sound, I've got to close my bathroom door because the steam pipes are so loud. I've got to record that and use that actually somehow. <laughs> there you go. And um, so, you know, we were, we were, we considered ourselves, me and, and um, uh, Jean and, and, and Wayne Clifford and Nick Taylor and Vincent Gallo, who some of you probably know who he is, we all considered ourselves like the coolest kids in, on the whole downtown scene. We danced the best, we dressed the best, back in those days. The, the true hipsters, we were still, you know, shopping from uh, thrift shops, and we would wear suits from the 30s and hats from the 40s, and, you know, we, we were like total darlings on the scene, good-looking guys, good dancers, had the hippest girlfriends, and then, of course, we have to have the coolest band, and so we were playing music uh, inspired by noise, inspired by Stockhausen, Cage, but especially one of our biggest influences, was, two of our biggest influences were like P.I.L., you know, Johnny Lydon's uh, second band, P.I.L., and another more obscure English band called uh, This Heat, uh, led by the drummer percussionist Charles Haywood, um, Charles Hayward, and th This Heat, if any of you uh, know this heat you know what i'm talking about you know the the blue and yellow album uh self-titled this heat uh but they had tracks like uh 24 track loop and horizontal hold um and um what else 
these are like these, these brilliant, amazing songs that um, they used synthesizers and loops and and really were inventive in the studio. We were really inspired by them. And what was also exciting about Gray for me was all that I had learned in the tubes in terms of um, uh, theatrics and staging and props and, and all, you know, the, just having the balls to, like, you know, <clears throat> build uh, costumes and sets and props from, uh, uh, you know, everyday objects and items and turning them into something else and 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 using makeup and in ways no one had ever done before and using props in ways no one no one had ever done before and really going all out in a theatrical let's go out in the backyard and put on a show uh type type way you know and, and you know of course the geniuses behind that uh was Prairie Prince and Michael Cotton you know they were the geniuses behind building <clears throat> the sets and props and doing the makeup using airbrush equipment to do makeup and 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 then of course you know there was all the you know the amazing people like Sharon Collins who who did did costuming for the band I mean it was a circus there was it was a cast of thousands building sets making costumes you know Kenny Ortega of course directing the whole show and choreographing the show um I got to actually choreograph some things I certainly learned a lot from Kenny Ortega and learned a lot from Michael Cotton and Prairie Prince in terms of production design. And so I took a lot of what I had learned. That was my my baptism into show business, frankly. And I took a lot of what I had learned in the tubes and applied it in probably a much more avant-garde style in Gray, with Gray. So whenever Gray performed, we performed it all the the best places hurrahs cbgb's the mud club um um mickey one uh tier three uh a a space i mean we played in all the hip places in new york and we'd always try to do something interesting visually with the band i would always you know and i was always the one that did it you know i was the one who was in charge of set you know building the sets designing the sets and one particular story that that comes to mind that's i think i think is rather visual and would work on the radio and uh you know true story type thing and it was in the screenplay you know, i wrote the screenplay to the film basquiat that julian schnabel directed it ended up <clears throat> they ended up not having the money or whatever the wherewithal to to realize the scene but uh, I'll describe it to you. What happened was, <clears throat> it was the Mud Club. It was one of our last gigs at the Mud Club. And like I said, I always did some interesting staging, you know, using props and sets and, and, and unconventional staging. The Mud Club stage was, it was about um, three and a half feet tall, typical stage height, four feet high. And um, But it was modular. It would break apart into eight or nine separate pieces that would stack inside of each other so they had this way of like you know they were these they were all hollow boxes that you could take away from each other and then put pieces put other boxes inside them almost like one of those russian uh yeah. one of those russian oh. doll toys that you open them up and there's another doll inside 
the, the stage was designed specifically so that it could be it could be taken apart like that and and put in the elevator and brought up to another another floor. So what I did was I took I emptied out a middle area in the stage so it was almost like a donut on its side. Does that make sense? Like a rectangular yeah, donut, I- you know, on on its side with a with a cavity in the center that I had taken out and put my drums in. So I'm sitting down inside the body of the stage and all you can see is that is my head because the drums and everything else are inside the bot inside the, this cavity this empty okay. space in this 4 foot tall stage so that makes sense right yes so the drum kit is inside this cavity and i'm sitting there playing drums and all you can see is my head then i went up to the bronx and got about 100 dollars worth of scaffolding and and found a bunch of lumber and stuff in the garbage in the back. Chinatown, I mean, the Mud Club was in, in Chinatown, just off Broadway on White Street. And um, so we got this $100 worth of scaffolding from a scaffolding company and a bunch of lumber that we found out in the street and built this, myself and the rest of the band, minus Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, we built this ignorant geodesic dome, this like, this like like a geodesic dome that had been built in bizarro bizarro world. Okay. You know, just like really badly done but solid. And um it's like a, it's like a jungle gym on top of the stage. This like tangled web of metal and and wood but real solid. So that the two keyboardists for this gig, uh Vincent Gallo and Wayne Clifford they were inside the, the inside the body of the jungle gym, strapped in at forty five degree angles with leather straps. Oh my and goodness! Their key, and their keyboards were there, so they were like up off the stage by about two feet off the stage inside the body of this jungle gym, but at hanging inside them inside the jungle gym, facing each other at forty five degree angles. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I'm can I'm you sure picture that? Trying to see them getting in their positions. I mean, well, they'd get in their position, and then, and then we would build these these ropes and and straps to hold them up there. <laughs> kind of like anti gravity, like they're they're like facing down towards the stage, but yeah. at forty five degree angles. It doesn't sound very comfortable. But... Not comfortable, and then their keyboards were at forty forty five degree angles, so they could play them, uh-huh. and then. The guitarist, Nick Taylor, is all the way up at the top of this piece of metal scaffolding, and he's playing guitar, but he's so high up that all you can see of him throughout the whole gig was the bottom of his legs from the knees down, and he's playing yeah. guitar. So you don't see his face or his bo- or his upper body, just his legs. Then you only see my head down, way down below, and then inside the jungle gym, you see the two keyboardists strapped in at 45-degree angles. So this is like the, the, the style that I'm working in. It's very arty. It's very uh, out of this world. It's like nothing, no one's ever done anything like this before. Like, so that's why I'm into it. So Jean, who never lifted a finger to, to, to do any menial work, that just was not his style, he comes walking in at 7.30 just in time for sound check, and he sees... He had no idea what I was going to do. 
He had no idea about the jungle gym and the scaffolding and all that. So he walks in and is blown away by what he sees. But Jean was very, like, you know, cool, super cool. So he was never going to say anything like, wow, this is amazing or whatever. He just looked at it and his eyes got really big. And I said to him kind of coy, I said, you know, well, I told you a time we were going to, you know, be doing this. And he turns around and walks out. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, is he, like, jealous that I came up with this really cool set? And, you know, where where is he going? And he goes, and, and again, it's important to note that he never, he had no idea what I was going to build. He goes outside, and without having any idea of, of, of this jungle gym beforehand, he goes out into the garbage uh, into the, an empty lot or something somewhere behind the, the mud club, and in five minutes comes back, and he walks back into the club, and he's got this big, he's got this box. It's a wooden box, three foot by three foot by three foot wooden box, empty, with one of the faces open, right? Just a cube. Yes. He, he's carrying that, dragging that behind him, and I'm like, Jean, what are you going to do with that? And he throws it up on the stage, he climbs up on the stage and crawls. He has to scrunch his body down into like a ball in order to fit into this box. You know, you can imagine. It's three foot cubed, and he's going to squeeze his body. He was like six foot one. He was tall, but he was very skinny. So he was able to squeeze his body almost like a an, 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 a burial sarcophagus urn, you know, where people would put dead bodies in an urn and bury it underground. He's like squeezed into this into this wooden crate, pulls his synthesizer in with him, and I'm out in the house, and he looks out at me and smiles. The funny thing is, is uh, uh, Prairie Prince and Michael Cotton were there at this very moment. And I'm looking up on stage, and I see him in this box, this wooden box, and there was wood in the design overall. And I realized that he had, not only had he gone out without knowing what this set was going to be like, not only had he gone out, and found something, this wooden box, that was so appropriately fit with the overall design of this of this ignorant geodesic dome set that I built. Yeah. But it but this wooden box with him in it on the stage in front of this whole thing made him the center of attention. And it was like, God, Sean, you're genius. I mean, you're genius. I mean, he's he was one of these people. Like I suppose, like Todd, you know. Jean-Michel Pascal is one of these people in the world that, that you know, they're one in, in 100 million who come around every once in a while, and they, and they change the game. They just change the whole game. And Jean was one of these people. You know, he changed the whole art world. And I had this great, incre- I had this incredible honor to um, be in a band with him. Right. And, and, and as I said, I, I had the, the, a lot of fun in that. You know, I got to do all the, the, the set designs because I had this practical experience from the tubes. But the band, the music was very democratic. I mean, we, we pretty much, you know, brought whatever we were doing to um, that particular song. And we'd kind of jam and look for things and eventually find something and keep working and keep working and eventually find something that really worked. But keep in mind... The first rule in being in the band Grey was that you couldn't be a musician. 
Like if you were a musician, we didn't want you in the band because we were coming more from a John Cageian point of view or perspective or, or, or sensibility. We wanted people in the band who would approach music and sound from more from a painterly point of view and more deconstructive point of view. For example, we would use conventional instruments but use but but play them in extremely unconventional ways. Like Jean would take an electric guitar, sit on the floor, put the guitar on its back on the floor, loosen all the strings, and then but it would be plugged into an amplifier, of course, but then play the guitar strings with a metal file. Right. Like right. running the metal file along the strings. Or I would take my drum kit, and the way I would play drums on a particular song might be, and this you can actually hear on the album. Uh, I sent you some tracks like this, I think, um, where I would I would tape a microphone to the drum head Tighten the head really tight. Have the the microphone plugged into an amplifier, set on reverb or whatever, and then rub masking tape onto the drum head, which made its own sound like, and then pull the masking tape off the drum head, which sounded like, and then that would become this percussive loop. I would just scratch the tape on and then pull it off, scratch it on and pull it off for two minutes. And that would be either the complete song or the percussive backing to a, a particular track. And as abstract as this sounds, believe me, we more, more often than not would find quite incredibly uh, well-balanced and beautiful and, 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 and harmonious uh, uh, we would create uh, amazing compositions that, that in spite of the fact that, that it, would, it might be considered noise, we found a way to make it more than noise. We found a way to, have it, to make it rhythmic, melodic, uh, carry a narrative, oftentimes be a basis for, for vocals. And, um, you know, of course, we, we've, we've, you know we've all, we also experiment and venture into conventional drums and conventional sounds, but we always treat them in very unconventional ways. Well, it's, um, it's, I don't mean sorry. to interrupt, but no, I no, am no. I mean, in here wondering, um, it sounds easy enough to do, you know, if you're re recording this in a studio and, and you can splice things together and stuff like that, but how would you, I don't understand how you would perform this live, or was it more like the audience was coming to see performance art? Well, it's interesting. That's a great question, and that's a great question that we're asking ourselves now. Now that things have become far more uh, complex and sophisticated, like how exactly, how much of it's going to be pre-recorded that we're going to pull masking tape off of as a lead to the yeah. pre-recorded. But but back in the day, when we had like four guys, now there's only two of us, so it makes it a little trickier. But back in the day, like in the, in the early 80s, when we were making music like this, and there were four of us, it wasn't difficult at all. You know, like for example, a particular track, I might just be pulling masking tape off the drum head, and Jean might be playing the Wasp synthesizer. Some of you may remember the Wasp. It's a small English synthesizer, kind of rudimentary, but really great sounds. Um, Nick would be on guitar. Uh, 
Wayne might be uh, doing something with keyboards and uh, playing live, it was never a problem. I mean, the, the, the songs really worked. And they, would- they, they, they were very easy to compose and, you know, we, we, it would take us weeks to write the song and, and, and rehearse the song so that we knew who did what when, but it was all, it was not random. It was it was prescribed and and we had solos and we had verse chorus and we had bridges and and hooks and breaks but they were supplied by much more unconventional um, sort from much more unconventional sources. Well, is there any film out there or video or, or whatever of any of these? You know, it's it's the bane of my existence that that. The videotape shot of that particular gig that I described in the ignorant geodesic dome, the mug club uh-huh. gig, was never found. Somebody shot it, but no one, no one knows where it is, if it, or if it even exists anymore. It might be in the storage of Steve Mass's storage in the new mug club in Berlin. Steve Mass was the owner of the mug club, but it's never been found, and it's just oh. heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Um, Sounds like really something to see. Oh yeah, and you know, oh the other great thing was that the the the, the set had a uh, the, the stage had a it, it was always there. It had a metal storefront uh, gate. You know how you have store gates on storefronts that come rolling down oh, and you yeah, lock sure. up your store. Well, Steve Mass used that for his stage curtain. That was the <laughs> curtain. <laughs> And I think actually the Whiskey A Go Go has the same same uh, thing going on. He might have gotten it from the Whiskey A Go Go. I'm not sure. But when the when the curtain came up, we were already playing. We were already started the music, and then the curtain came up. And so this curtain is like this metal clanking gate. But the metal clanking gate played perfectly with our atmospheric noise music. Yeah. And by the time it came up, you know, we were finished the song. Did four or five other songs, all about like a minute long, two minutes long. The set was 12 minutes long. The curtain came down. And I remember watching the curtain come down or the gate come down and seeing these people's faces. And everybody to a man had their mouths were had dropped wide open, almost like Edvin Munch's painting, The Scream. Yeah. And it was just an ocean of the scream. And uh, in the audience, actually, it was that way when the curtain first came up, because I'm sitting down, ostensibly on the floor of the club inside the stage. My head is almost even with everybody out in the out in the audience, um, you know, standing up watching the show. Yeah. And it was just the most. Everybody's mouth was wide open. I'll never forget that. We blew their mind, and then. Someone came running backstage and said, do you realize your gig was only 12 minutes long? And I will never forget what Basquiat said. He said, yeah, brevity's the point. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, man, that's so deep. We were such <laughs> deep beatniks. <laughs> that is really, that's a good story. That's really cool. Well, you and, um, is it Nick Taylor that you guys are still doing this, still making music? and um yeah, Nick album? Taylor was also another uh, another original member of the band. He and I came back together again about two years ago, determined to put out an album. We've had we've made we had music from back in those days, but we also had you know in the early '80s. But we also had music from the '90s, and then we have stuff that we've made new new tracks that we made 
just in the last couple of months. And the album, which is called Shades of, and you can find it on iTunes, by the way, uh, Shades, it's, it's by Gray with an A, G-R-A-Y. The name of the album is Shades of dot, dot, dot. So there's three, three periods, Shades of dot, 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 you know, by Gray. Gray is not in the title of the album. It's just the name of the band. So it's Shades of, and it's on iTunes. And um, there's some amazing music on there. There's, there's tracks from uh, 1980. Drum Mode, which a lot of people know about that song, Drum Mode. It's very avant-garde, abstract, noise-oriented. But a lot of people know it, and we're sort of famous for that one track for sure, Drum Mode. It's been in a lot of films and whatnot. But then there's another really, really cool piece. It's a, it's called Suicide Hotline. And Jean-Michel Basquiat one day decided to call a suicide hotline operator and just in time, uh, or Wayne Clifford, rather, uh, just in time is a stage name, Wayne Clifford, who was also in the band, decided to record it as Jean calls the suicide hotline operator and reads his poetry to him. But what's fascinating about this is that the suicide hotline operator doesn't really understand what's going on. He doesn't know... What's going on? Jean-Michel Basquiat is crazy because based on the poetry, he doesn't know what kind of conversation he's having. I'll give you an example of how, how it went. The very first thing the suicide hotline operator hears is this. Before anybody says anything, Jean speaks first and says, do I have to fill out a form to get my liquid cigarettes? It was always cheaper to get hijacked Marlboros from the trustees. And the suicide hotline operator says, what, 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 what? Excuse me, what did you say? And Jean says, do I have to fill out a form? You know, black, white, gray, these last few months, check, canceled checks, the police arrive. The guy goes, what? What are you talking about? Who? He says, and then Jean says, you won't be so arrogant when the police arrive. And he goes, yeah, yeah, who are you? Who are you? Who's, who's calling? Where are, you, where are you calling from? And Jean says, I don't know where I'm at. Do I have to fill oh, out a man. form? And it just keeps going on like this, and it turns into this cat and mouse game that is literally – it gives me goosebumps. It's so brilliant. And, you know, many people know Basquiat as this, you know, incredible painter, probably one of the most famous and most important and most collected uh, painter of his generation. And, you know, his his paintings sell in auction now for up to $20 million. If he was still alive, he'd have been 50 years old now. But, you know, he died very young at 27, just like Jimmy and... Yeah. Janice and Jim and James, like, God, all the Jims that died at 27. Jim Morrison, James Dean, Jimi Hendrix, Janice Joplin, Gene Harlow also died at 27, believe it or not. So did Jean-Michel Basquiat, and funny age. A lot of people who die young die at 27. But Jean was brilliant, I was kind of got off the point. And the point was that Jean's a brilliant painter, is known for his painting. But truly his poetry is even more highly regarded. And uh, you can witness his poetry spoken by him on this album as he does a suicide hotline. You can also hear his vocals at, uh, on some of the other tracks. So Basquiat's in in and on this album. The artwork for the CD is uh, uh, 
Jean-Michel's. And what's interesting about that is uh, we basically took a poster that Jean created for a gig that we did at uh, CBGB's and just kind of reconfigured it to fit a square format that a CD is. You know, it's not exactly square, but, you know. Uh, from a, from an eight and a half by eleven flyer to a uh, to more of a, uh, a CD frame, and so you know when you when you have the the CD, you you also have a piece of Basquiat artwork on the CD. He's in the he's on the album. He's in the album, but the music is 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 stands above and beyond just Basquiat. I mean, I, you know, I think it's rather good. A lot of it is just music composed by Nick and I before you know long after Jean was gone. But there's 32 and a half. There's 32 years of of uh, a, a 32 year span of music on this CD. Hmm. So what? You can also get it if you want to get a hard copy. You can also get it uh, from other music on their website, and and we're being picked up uh, as a dis, dis, we're the distributor forced exposure, who's probably the best U.S. distributor. Has uh, is picking us up and we'll be selling our CD in uh, record stores, you know, around the country. Hopefully, by the new year, we'll be all over the country um, in record stores. You know, probably the kind of record stores like in New York, other music and Kim's video and music, and probably the you know the more avant-garde, hipster, electronica, uh, alternative. Mm-hmm record stores the CDs will be selling in. Oh, you know what's interesting, Mel, is that when we first when I first started selling the CDs starting last month, the because the CD selling at the Museum of Modern Art in Paris where the Basquiat retrospective is right now until the end of January, um it's it hit me like, you know, hey, it, and it sold we sold 150 CDs to that museum. It's like, hey, you know, what other museums are going to want this because of, you know, the Basquiat retros- the, the connection? Uh-huh. So I started contacting museums all over the country, and a lot of them, you know, are picking, have them. Like, for example, they're selling at MoCA and LACMA in L.A. They're selling uh, at Mark, Mark Jacobs Bookstore in New York. They're selling uh, at the Manil Collection in Houston. These are all like, you know, for the most part, fine art institutions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it's kind of fun that they're in museums, and then they'll be the, then the CDs will also be in, in in record stores, as well as the future on digital. <laughs> so it 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 will be available on iTunes or or I believe it's available now. Oh, okay, good. All right, everybody, get out there and purchase Shades of dot dot dot. Thank you, Mel. Shades of dot, dot, dot by Gray, G-R-A-Y, featuring Jean-Michel Basquiat, Michael Holman, Nick Taylor, Wayne Clifford. Well, tell us, okay, you you mentioned those two songs that that date back into the 80s, but uh, tell me what one of the songs is that's, you know, brand new. Okay, yeah, and I sent some of those to you, so you should be able to play them. Um, well, yep. first of all, getting back to what you just mentioned, the, the, the two songs I mentioned, um, I'm just going to open this up um, to remember what I sent you. Oh, I have it here. Shoot. Sorry, you may have to edit this. 
<laughs> little dead space, dead space, dead space, dead space. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, I, what I sent you is I sent you the tracks, um, The Man Who. Mm-hmm. There's one track called The Man Who. Uh, and that is a brand new uh, uh, track by Nick and I. And um, oh, uh, Prairie Prince is on some of these albums, some of these tracks. So is a really hot young drummer named uh, Dean Anthony. And uh, Lenny Ferrari is also on one of these as, as drummer. Uh, but the man who is new. And then there's Eight Hour Religion. And that's new, but it has some samples of Jean-Michel Basquiat's voice on there and vocals, as does uh, Figure It Out For Yourself that has Jean on there musically and vocally. Um, Drum Mode is the one I was talking to you about earlier that we recorded back in the 80s for the film Downtown 81. Um, That has Jean on it as a musician. Um, Pillar of Salt is a new song. Wig Hat is a new song. So I sent you those one, two, three, four, five, six songs. The Man Who, Eight Hour Religion, Figure It Out For Yourself, Drum Mode, Pillar of Salt, and Wig Hat. Okay. Actually, uh, I'm thinking that I should send you um, this one song called... um, this one song that is me pulling masking tape off the drum head so that you can kind of get an idea of what that's like. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's called Gauntlet of Wrigley's. I'm sure it's not too big. Yeah, it's only three millibytes, megabytes. Oh, wait, i got to pull it down on the desktop. Dead time, dead time, dead time. <laughs> you can send it to me later on, and we'll just get it played after. After yep, we finish that's talking. what I'll do. Because everybody knows that we're not doing this interview live anyway. We're not doing it live any damn way. No, no. Hey, so what I else did you want to ask me ask about that? Huh? I'm meaning to ask you, um, I know uh, last time you were on the show, we talked quite a bit about uh, your life in the hip-hop world. And I, 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 I cheated, and I listened to that interview last night. Um, okay. Fresh my memory, and one question that I remember I wanted to ask you, and I never got around to it, was, what is the difference between hip-hop and rap? That's a very good question. Is it just that rap is a little angrier or something? No. (laughs) There's a couple of interesting answers to that very, very good and probing and appropriate question. First of all, and there's a, there's a number of ways to answer it. Number answer number one is this: hip hop culture is a culture that encompasses a number of elements, of which rap is one of them. Mm-hmm. So one can say, "Oh man, I'm 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 a hip hop kid. I'm down with hip hop culture." By definition, you should you should be saying, or that should mean, or that should stand for this idea that you are a fan of, yes, rap music, but also scratching or special mix or quick-cutting DJing, which is a whole art form into, unto itself, uh, aerosol or, or, and or graffiti art, which we know is, you know, use aerosol cans, etc. Right. And 
breakdancing or b-boying. So hip-hop culture encompasses all those elements. You know, well, and, it, and I sort of call it like five fingers to a hand or a fist. You know, you've got the fashion and the language and all the, the trappings of hip-hop, you know, the clothes, the, the lingo, the lexicon that would make hip-hop. You've got the dance, the b-boys, the break dancers. You've got the music supplied by the DJs or the mm-hmm. DJs themselves, the turntablists, the people that, 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 that rock right. the, the two turntables and a microphone, scratching records, quick cutting, etc. You've got the rappers um, who are rapping over the music, and you've got the graffiti artists or the aerosol artists. So that's five, right? The yes. fashion and the look, the language, the, the, the dancers, the DJs, the rappers, and the graffiti. Okay. Now, so so in a way, you could argue that hip-hop culture encompasses all these things and rap is just one element of it. That was a long answer. Do you want me to give you a shorter answer? <laughs> sure. Okay, just in case you want to edit this somehow. <laughs> the shorter answer, the difference between, what's the difference between hip-hop and rap? Number one, the first way to answer that is that hip-hop is the name of the overarching subculture that encompasses rap DJing or special mix DJing, quick cutting, scratching, etc. Graffiti art or aerosol art, break dancing or the b boys, and the fashion and the language. So it's so rap is just one of the five elements that makes up hip hop culture. Okay. A second way to answer that is that there have been over the last fifteen or twenty years there has been a concerted effort by people in the the rap game to in my opinion usurp and and take over the term hip hop so that it means only rap. Well, I think that may be why I'm I, I even had the question at all. And that's why a lot of people are confused. It's like, well wait a second, what's hip hop? What's I thought rap was hip hop. But for me, for an old hip hop head, for for a pioneer, hip hop pioneer, to me, hip-hop will always mean and only mean all the elements, including rap. Many people today would say, oh, well, hip-hop is rap, and it's only rap. And therefore, what that says is that the b-boying and the and turntablists and graffiti artists, because they don't generate the same kind of profits and income, have now been kicked to the curb and have been, and have been by the mavens of rap, been considered not hip-hop anymore because now rap is only hip-hop. And I don't agree with that. I don't buy that. Right. Okay, so that's the second answer. The second answer, to recap again, is that that rap and rap producers and rap artists have taken over the term hip-hop, and the way they've taken it over, it's to the exclusion of all the other elements of hip-hop. Is that clear? Right. Yes, I get now, it now. the third way... To answer that, and this is even more kind of nuanced and interesting, is that when I think, when someone says, is there a difference between hip-hop music and rap music? I say, yes, clearly there is a big difference between hip-hop music and rap music. Hip-hop music is the music that the hip-hop DJs would play at a throwdown, at a, a hip-hop party, whatever, that may or may not 
be suitable to rap over, but it's the music. And I'll give you an example. And this music was, um, you know, classic disco and funk and soul tracks, sometimes funk and soul novelty tracks that stood out as the real party, uh, party motivators back in the day. And there are some classics, there are some classic songs that we would call hip-hop classics that actually exist and are part of other genres. For example, uh, MFSBC's, um, MFSBC, MFSB's, God, MFSBC, sorry. Everyone knows the band MFSB from Philadelphia. They did a track called Love is the Message. And that is a classic disco track. It was huge in the disco days in the mid and early 70s. But it's also a classic hip-hop track because the hip-hop DJs would play it, you know, uh, on and on and on. Another case would be, say, James Brown's Give It Up or Turn It Loose, the live version of that track. That's a classic funk and soul James Brown's record. We all know James Brown is. But it's also a classic hip-hop. It's also a hip-hop classic. Um, so that song fit within soul and funk, but it's also part of the, the hip-hop canon. Uh, other novelty songs like The Mexican by, by the band Babe Ruth, total novelty song because it's that song that goes da 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 warning, morning, proud morning, Mexican, da 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 has this kind of like Western movie theme vibe to it, but real thematic and real galloping, really fast piece, pe- pace. Now, Babe Ruth was, a, was an English band. They weren't even American. And they did this song called The Mexican, which, unbeknownst to them, years later, was discovered by the hip-hop DJs and fell in love with the song, would play it at these early, early hip-hop throwdowns, parties in the parks and whatnot, before it was even called hip-hop, the dancers who would later become break dancers, the freestyle dancers who would later become break dancers and b-boys, loved this song, would dance like crazy to it, and so it became a hip-hop classic. I guess one of the best ways to, 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 to qualify or to define a hip-hop classic is they would be these, these bin-diving uh, albums and tracks that, that, these, that these oftentimes hip-hop DJs would find in their older brothers and sisters or even parents' records collections that weren't really part of their generation that were classic dance songs um, that they would play at these new parties in the later 70s and early 80s that everyone fell in love with, and they became hip-hop classics. Another one would be um, Just Begun by... Uh, by uh, oh, now I can't remember. The oh, name. please don't tell me The Carpenters. Not that one. No, no, that's we've only just begun. Just begun by oh fudge, I can't remember now. I'll think of it. Um, watch me now, feel the groove. Da 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 da. Gonna make you move. Just begun. Uh, the Jimmy Caster bunch. Jimmy Caster bunch. Okay, Jimmy Caster bunch doing just begun. Uh, the uh, Babe Ruth doing the Mexican. Uh, James Brown doing give it up or turn it loose live. These are all these kind of 
novel songs that were one of a kind back in the day. And they were rediscovered by the, the, the hip-hop DJs who would play them at the hip-hop parties. And they were, that's hip-hop music. Rap music is not part of that. Rap music is newer music, you know, by, by rap artists done oftentimes over a beat, but sometimes over some of these classic hip-hop tracks. You know, sometimes right. they, would, they would take just a snippet of a James Brown record and loop it and find a way to continue the beat, take out James Brown's vocals, because that would only make things confusing, and, you know, rap over it, or rap over an 808 beat, or rap over, um, you know, some, some snippet of a record that they would, you know, that was a big thing to find some other music and then rap over it. One classic example of that was there was this French DJ, uh, uh, French uh, 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 music producer named Cerrone, and he did a song called Rocket in the Pocket. And if, you, if, you're a, a, if you've got a lot of skills as a, as a hip-hop DJ and you, can, and you have two of the same records on each of the turntables – and you're isolating a particular part of that record, of, of both of those records, the similar, the same records, and you're repeating them over and over again quickly by just mixing them back and forth. When the first one's about to run out, you start at the beginning of the next record of the same sample, and you just keep repeating this, looping it over and over again, allowing the rapper to have this consistent beat to rap over. Yeah. And that was yeah. basically the, you know, as we all, I mean, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know already, but the point is, is that that is hip-hop music at the service of rap music, turning it all into rap music. But rap is rap. Rap is when a rapper gets on the microphone and raps, you know, rhymes or whatever he's doing, like Jay-Z or like Lil Wayne, all these guys, that they're rappers. Yeah. To me, that's not hip-hop music. Right. It's well, I, part I of hip-hop it. culture. Yeah. But it's I, rap I music. I really understand it so much more now. And I, and I guess I might be able to actually, if anyone ever asks me about the difference between <laughs> rap and hip hop, I will now know how to. Well, I hope it wasn't too convoluted and confusing. No, no, no. But I I will tell you, we're about to run out of time. Um, I only scheduled uh, this this uh, this afternoon's interview for an hour and a half, and we're just about out of time, so it's going to cut us off soon. That's fine. Oh. I, that's. That's fine by me because I've got to get. I've got you know. I'm a busy New Yorker, man. Busy, busy. We're doing things. We're making things happen. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Plus, you've got a concert to go to later on tonight. I got a concert to go to later. I'm going to see Todd doing his uh, Robert Johnson show. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited about that. And I've got a party to go to right before that. And I've got a shower to take. And I've got all kinds of important things to do. Right. But I had a great time. Talking well, to you, I Mel. thank you so much, Michael. And you know, anytime you got something you want to have pimped on the show, you let us know, and we'll have you back because you do have some great stories. Uh, but I just want to say thank you again. Thank you for letting me pimp. <laughs> okay, I admit it. Now we're back here live. That was a pre-recorded interview. It was done this afternoon because Michael wanted to be able to go to the Todd Show tonight at the Gramercy Theater. So uh, I thought I was going to be able to pull it over on you guys, but when Prairie called in, I knew you guys would love that part, so I didn't want to edit it out. 
and uh, so that kind of busted us. But I hope you enjoyed listening to Michael tell some tales, and um, as well as explaining the difference between rap and hip hop, because you never know. Todd may pull out a hip hop album. You know, he has done a rap album. He might do a hip hop album. So he was talking. If you if you were paying much attention, he was talking about a certain uh, sound effect that he did where he he spoke about putting masking tape on a very tight drum head and the sound that it would make. Well, he sent me the song, and uh, I I have made a clip. It's about, oh, half a minute long or something like that. Um, it is kind of cool a cool sound. So I'm going to play it for you now because some of you in the chat room have asked to hear a taste of the music that the band called Gray has done. And, by the way, their album is called Shades of Dot, Dot, Dot. It's available on iTunes and in uh, some other places. I think he said someplace called Other Music. I, I guess that's a store. Anyway, check this out. It's kind of cool. It's called Gauntlet of Wrigley's. So now you know what it sounds like when you put masking tape on the drum head, uh, on a drum head, and then pull it off slowly or quickly. I, I didn't didn't get into how quickly he did it, but it's kind of cool actually. Now I'm going to play that. Okay, by the way, that was done back in the 1980s. So that was gray back then. And this is a new song, or a portion of a new song, that uh, he has done just this year, and it's called The Man Who. So hold, please.
was a portion of The Man Who. Uh, if we have time at the end of the show, I will play you uh, a song that he he mentioned. I've got the entire song. Um, it was called Drum Mode, and it was from the 80s, although it's on this new album. And it, it, it's been used in movies and stuff like that. It's It's very, very cool. But I know you guys have been very, very good tonight, and I thank you, and I know that all the East Coasters, uh, have been at a Todd show tonight, and they're of course hearing some really good music. So it's it's uh, it's only fair that us who weren't lucky enough to get to go, that we should get to hear something kind of rare. And they're sitting there at the Gramercy Theater, and I'm sure they're having a good time, but they are not getting to hear these rarities first, like you guys are. So I just can't decide where to. Start. Um, how about we start with a sound check from Saturday Night Live? It's about, uh, I think it's 12 or 13 minutes long, but uh, I've been told it's really, really cool. So why don't we get into that? Because I, I know we've got enough time for that. Let's listen to the Saturday Night Live sound check. <laughs>
pretty incredible. <laughs> I could have listened to an hour of that. That was amazing. Uh, that was uh, the sound check for when Todd and band appeared on Saturday Night Live. Um, wow, that was really something. That's the first time I've heard it. First time you guys, you guys have heard it, too. So I'm glad you guys liked it. It seemed like you were saying positive things in the chat room. So... I am going to bring you something else now that I think you're going to like. Hold on, I gotta find it. Where is it? Okay, now this, yeah, we still have time for this. <clears throat> it is a about six, seven minutes of something from Second Wind. Uh, unfortunately, I gotta explain that Doug uploaded these rarities and and kind of you know doug he just said oh yeah well this is a sound check from saturday night live it's about 13 minutes or this is an instrumental from second wind seven minutes but he didn't tell me what it was so let's all sit back and be surprised together shall we
Ah, so you liked it, huh? Getting some great responses in the chat room. I think that was brilliant. Even without the lyrics going on, it was great. So thank you, thank you, thank you to whoever shared that little clip with Doug. And thank you, Doug, for uploading it and <laughs> uh, saving me the uh, the hassle. Anyway, we're about to sign off, but I am going to play one more entire song, actually, from uh, Michael Holman's band called Gray as we as we run out of time here. But I hope Doug's out there having a good time in New York City. I hope people can understand him as he speaks. <laughs> and if anybody's going to the Vegas show, look for me, my little red head, and come and say hi. And I guess that's where we're going to sign off pretty much. So we don't have a guest for next week, but we're going to find one. Don't you worry. So I'm going to say aloha and shine on. And this is Michael Holman's band called Gray doing a song called Drum Mode that was has been played in a movie or two. Okay? It's actually quite nice. All right? Good night, everybody.
Hi, everybody. This is Todd Rundgren, and you're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. <laughs> 